Father, we're grateful yet again to be gathered together to worship You, to sing Your praises, of how great Your grace is. Indeed, it is what binds our heart to You. Indeed, our heart is prone to wonder. Often we go astray, and yet it is Your grace that keeps us and preserves us and holds us fast. And so we're grateful for that, Lord. Uh, we're thankful for the good news of our Savior's death and resurrection on our behalf. We're thankful that He shed His blood for our forgiveness, and now we're grateful to come and hear from heaven as we consider the truths of Your Word. So guide us, Lord, as we read this through the confession together, as we consider the biblical passages that are referenced in the confession, help us to understand these truths and apply them to our hearts and lives for Your glory. Amen. Alright, I'm not sure if you have a copy of the confession or not. If you do not, you need a copy of the confession. That would be helpful. There are about ten more over there. I've been announcing it for quite some time, so everyone should have gotten one. If you haven't, it should be fine for you to grab one now. Oh, right. I have. said there were a couple at home, but I forgot to grab them. <laughs> That's fine. You, you can grab one or two from there. You can go grab one and just put it back when you're done that way. You don't have to take another one. Anyone needs a confession, feel free to grab one. You could, it's not like we're going to run out today. It's fine. But if you already have one at home, just grab one now, put it back, and then try to remember next week. It's already hard enough to remember to bring your Bible. Uh, and then you've got to add a confession onto it now. There is, by the way, you know, I know some people like to use the Bible on their phone. I don't know how people here feel about that. This looks like a pretty a good crew that brings their actual Bible. But there is a free copy of the confession to read online as well. You can find this on foundersministries.com. So just in case you'd like to use it that way. All right, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. That's what we're going to begin a study of this morning. And uh, the confession is a Reformed Baptist confession. Um, does anyone know what is meant by Reformed Baptist? Because, you know, there's so many Baptist churches and so many different kinds of churches. What's the d- difference between a Reformed Baptist church? Verse by verse. Expository preaching is a is a hallmark in most Reformed churches. That's true. Though there are other churches that do expository preaching as well. But that's definitely a big one within Reformed circles. Okay? Well, what distinguishes a Reformed Baptist church from other churches? Does anybody know? Okay, that's why we're going through the confession. We're going to find out, right? So basically, the word Reformed, it, uh, it means that we hold to certain doctrines that were popularized during the Reformation, right? Reformed, Reformation. Uh, There are at least three cardinal truths that uh, kind of summarize that movement. Uh, Number one is what we call the five solas. The five solas. Is anyone familiar with the five solas? They're all at your house, but... They're all all on my wall somewhere. Uh, The word sola is a Latin (laughs) word that means alone. Uh, and so you have five solas. You have sola gratia, that is salvation by grace alone. Sola fide, salvation through faith alone. Solus Christus, salvation in Christ alone. Sola scriptura, that our source of revelation is scripture alone. And sola deo gloria, that is all to the glory of God alone. So that was the kind of the mantra cry of the Reformation. Why do you think that uh, these doctrines were so emphasized in the 1500s. What it, what is it that led to the strong emphasis of these truths? Martin Luther wanted to return to the scriptures rather than the teachings of the Catholic Church and his goal was to reform the Catholic Church. Amen, right? So it didn't work. 
it didn't work, right? So we had to branch out and become the protesters. Huh? So that's it. The Roman Catholic Church had distorted the gospel for so long. That's why we call it the Dark Ages, right? Uh, for so long, the gospel had been seemingly lost. Martin Luther kind of rediscovered the gospel in his study of Galatians and Romans, and he was shaken to the core, so much so that he nailed his 95 theses to the Catholic Church door, and that launched the Reformation. And all of those five solas are really a uh, refutation of doctrines that are propagated by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church does not teach salvation by grace alone. You can even ask the Catholic Church, they'll tell you they don't. Salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it's by faith and works. Um, and that ultimately robs God of His glory, because if it's not by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, and we contribute, then we can get some of the glory in our salvation. And of course, sola scriptura, because the Catholic Church said, no, the Bible alone isn't our standard. It's the Bible in conjunction with church tradition and papal authority. But Martin Luther and the Reformers said, no, the Word of God alone exclusively is the source of our authority. So the five solas were rightly popularized during the Reformation. The second cardinal set of truths is what we call the five uh, points of Calvinism, or TULIP. Uh, it's an acronym, uh, T-U-L-I-P, and each letter stands for uh, a doctrinal reality within Calvinism. Uh, T is total depravity. That is to say that uh, all men are corrupt to the core of their being, so much so they're unable to love or please God apart from grace. Uh, U is unconditional election, which asserts that God has chosen to save a group of people, only a remnant, and it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with their will or effort, but His own sovereign choice of mercy. Uh, L is limited atonement. We talked about this last week in the sermon, that Christ did not intentionally die for everyone. He died specifically to save those whom the Father has given Him, the elect. Uh, I is irresistible grace. When God draws a sinner salvifically, it's effectual so that it always results in faith and salvation. And then P is perseverance of the saints. Those whom God's chosen, those whom Christ, for whom Christ has died, God keeps them by the work of the Spirit so they endure to the end and enter into glory. And it's a consistent system. It begins with God and it ends with God. If man's so depraved he can't save himself, he has to be saved by God, it makes sense that if God saves him, God keeps him saved. It is a consistent system. And then the other cardinal truth is what we call covenant theology. Has anyone ever heard of that? Covenant theology. Okay. No one? All right, basically, covenant theology asserts this, that there are one of two covenants in which every human being who's ever lived is in. Everyone's in or under one of those two covenants. Does anyone know what those two covenants are? Not bad, not a bad choice of words. So there's the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, okay? Covenant of works, covenant of grace. And in those two covenants, there's one man in each covenant that represents a huge group of people. Adam represented the whole human race so that when he sinned, we sinned in Adam. But then Christ in the covenant of grace represents the elect so that his righteousness is our righteousness and his death is on our behalf, okay? So in Adam we're condemned, in Christ we're made alive. Right, 1 Corinthians 15 says, In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. Right? So that's kind of the three cardinal truths. And those will be unpacked and unfolded as we work uh, line by line through the confession. Okay. So if you have your copy of the confession, turn with me to page 11. Page 11. There are uh, 20, let's see, 20, 32 chapters in the confession. 
a total of 59 pages, not a lot. You can you read three pages of this a day. There's no pictures in, sorry, but if you read three pages a day, you could read this confession in, you know what, uh, 20 days or so, so it wouldn't take a long time. It's hard to read that many pages, so that's bad. It is, that, that's true. There's a lot to chew on, isn't there? Yeah. That's true. Well, that's why we're not working our way through one three pages. One short section. Yeah. <laughs> or half of a long section. So just read a paragraph a day. Okay. It'll take you maybe six months, but you'll have a thorough understanding of the confession. Let me let me give uh, throw out some caveats here before we even move into the confession. Some kind of uh, disclaimers. The confession is not inspired of God. Is anybody shocked about that? No, right? We understand. This is a human document. The confession is not the Word of God. It is not inspired of God. It is not infallible. It is subject to error. I don't agree with every jot and tittle of the confession, and I'll point out areas of confession I disagree with as we work through it. This is a human document. However, I'm convinced that this is the best written uh, confessional expression of biblical truth. Okay, um, And I'm not making this up. John Speed was a Reformed Baptist. He believed the confession. F.B.C. Breyer believes the confession. This is just, you know, this is the tradition with, uh, from which we come. So, this is not the Word of God. This is a humanly made document that I think best expresses the doctrinal truths of Scripture. So, And before we even dive in, why is it important as a church and as individuals that we know what we believe? So that way when we do go out to evangelize, we have a rock that we can stand on. Okay, so like it's... a platform. Okay. So it's important for evangelism, right? We need to understand what the Bible teaches if we're going to do evangelism. Okay, good. Why else is it important? To recognize what's wrong. To recognize what's wrong doctrinally, right? Okay, good. Why else? Evangelism, doctrinal purity. Any other thoughts? Let me also say this, as you're thinking of some more thoughts. You do not have to be confessional to be a Christian, right? Of course not. You have to believe the gospel to be a Christian. You do not have to be confessional to be a member of our church. All you have to do to be a member of our church is believe the gospel, right? The essential doctrines of the Christian faith. But you have to be at least willing to be teachable. That doesn't mean you have to believe everything the confession teaches, but you've got to be teachable. Uh, but anyone who does serve as a pastor or an elder in our church would need to be fully confessional because we need consistency from the pulpit, right? It wouldn't be helpful if I get up and said one thing and then Jeremy next week got up for Sunday school and said this thing and then you're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? So you want consistency from uh, the teaching ministry of the church. But this is not a necessity for being a Christian. To be a Christian, you believe the gospel, right? So any other thoughts on why it's important that we believe, that we know what we believe theologically? It's also, I think, one of the reasons is because if, let's say, the pastors or the elders are doing, like saying something different than what this says, then you can see that they're doing it wrong, and then either confront them or talk to yeah. them privately. Yeah, so if you have this in front of you, and you understand the confession, and then I get up, and next week I say something that's just completely off, biblically, you can say, wait a minute, you know, from what I've read in the Scripture, from what I've read in our church's official doctrinal statement, that doesn't line up. There's something wrong. Because elders are accountable too. That's a very good point, right? We're held accountable morally and doctrinally. Let me give you two more reasons that the confession is helpful. Uh, number one, it serves kind of as a guard, guardrails, okay? So the confession keeps us 
in bounds, if you will. It keeps us grounded in sound theology. It keeps us, if you have a solid historical Christian doctrinal statement, it keeps you from leaving orthodoxy for heterodoxy, for error. Okay, so that's a kind of helpful guardrail. Uh, and then there was one more reason it was helpful, but I forgot. So that's the danger of teaching without notes. All right. Is everybody ready to dive in? Yep. We're on page 11, chapter 1, entitled The Holy Scriptures. And we'll read paragraph 1. And then essentially after I do that, I'll read a line. We'll discuss and consider each line together. So chapter 1, paragraph 1. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal Himself and to declare His will to His church. To preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world, the Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing His will to His people have now ceased. Loaded first paragraph, huh? So you can see why Carol said it's hard to read three pages of this a day. Alright, so let's start with that first phrase. Actually, let me ask you this. Is there anything that stood out to you from that first paragraph? It's pointing out that basically... You can say whatever, but at the end of the day, the Bible must be the authority. Like, there no. can't be anyone else. So the Bible, in of itself, right here, as it says, I stand on solid rock, every other ground is sinking sand. Bibles are a foundation, and then it's led by the people and the, and the pastors in that. Right, so the Word of God is the, the authority. Good. So according to the opening statement of the confession, is the confession the infallible source of truth? No. No, right? The, the confession begins by asserting the Bible alone. So we see that Reformed doctrine of sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone is our authority. Anything else stand out to you in that first paragraph? That this is strictly written for today does not apply totally to the Old Testament. Right, so it's written for us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, right? Yeah. Uh, it's important to, it's to note... All, it always said the church, the church, the church. Right. Now, one thing to note here, the confession does take the church to encompass the whole people of God throughout every age. That's the way the confession uses the word church. But I think there's a good point in that, and the fact that, you know, obviously Abraham didn't have the Gospel of Matthew. Right. right? So it's written... He didn't have any written. Right, that's a good point. <laughs> Very good point. So yeah, so the scriptures are written even for us today upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Amen. And it would be logical that it would be more for today because it was written sort of today. Right. Very good point. Any other thoughts on the first paragraph that stood out to you? The knowledge of God and His will is necessary for salvation. 
So okay. that's back to what you were saying of that we need to be sound in our doctrine because if we go out and evangelize and we say the wrong thing that the Bible says, people aren't going to come to Christ because we're misinterpreting what the Bible says. That's right. So that's why we have to be grounded in. Amen. Amen. That's right. So Paul said this to Timothy. Paul said, watch your life and doctrine closely so that you can assure salvation for both yourself and your hearers, right? Which implies that if someone does not watch their doctrine closely, they will not secure salvation for themselves and their hearers. They believe the wrong thing in terms of the gospel. They damn themselves and all those who believe the error that they're seeking to purvey, right? So doctrine is very important. Good point. All right, let's look at this uh, phrase by phrase. The first phrase says, The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So there is an assertion there that the Scripture is the standard, the measure of faith, knowledge, faith, and obedience. What what do you think the confession means by those three categories? The Scripture is the standard not only for knowledge, but also faith and obedience. What does that mean? Everything you need is in there. You don't need anything from someplace else. Good. So it's sufficient. You have all that you need in the Scripture. You do not need anything outside of the Bible to contribute to your walk with God. You don't even need the confession, right? The Bible is enough. It's enough. What else? Faith, I think, means like after we hear the Scriptures and after we come to Christ... This will help us grow in our faith, and this will also, the Bible will help us grow in our faith. And then, we keep on increasing every day to be more like Jesus. And so this, in of itself, is not helps, but this is the ultimate. I know, that's the source of authority. I know. Alright, so the three categories, notice that the scripture is the standard. For saving knowledge, that is everything you need to know to be saved and to do the will of God. Faith, all that you need to believe. And obedience, all that you need to do in your walk with God. All of that is revealed in the Scripture. It is the standard for everything you need to know, believe, and do. Notice that even that title there for the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures. What does the word holy mean again? We've talked about this. Set apart. Okay. Does anyone know what the word Scriptures mean? Writings. Writings. So the Bible is set apart writings, writings set apart by God for the church and through which He makes Himself known. And it's the standard, not only the standard, but as Carol pointed out, it's the only sufficient standard, the certain standard. What do you think is meant by certain? Absolute truth. Absolute truth, right? This isn't up for debate. You know, this isn't, it's not like this is, uh, you know... Uh, relativism, you can kind of decide what's true. This is absolute truth. This is certain. You can believe everything written in the Bible because it is the Word of God. And then, it's infallible. What does it mean that the Bible is infallible? Without flaw? Without flaw, and not even subject to flaws, right? It's without error, and it's not subject to error because it is the Word of God. All right, let's look at, uh, if you look at the bottom of the paragraph, you'll notice some footnotes. And on that first phrase, we have several verses. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
And we're going to look at verses 15 through 17, but we're actually going to start in verse 13. 2 Timothy 3, verses 13 through 17. Now, the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, says this. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So here's the context. There are false teachers that are deceived and deceiving other people. So Paul now points Timothy to an infallible source. Verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. So Timothy has learned truth. Who has he learned the truth from? Paul. Who else? His parents, right? His mother and grandmother. Verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. There you go. You have the the title Holy Scriptures in the Bible itself, right? From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So according to this verse, what is the Bible able to do? Make you wise. Gives you wisdom. We need that in our foolish culture, don't we? If all of these people espousing foolishness want wisdom, there's a place to go get it. It's not the internet. It's not Google. It's not a political campaign. It's the Scripture, right? The Bible. So it's able to make you wise and make you wise unto salvation. The Scripture does that. You don't need anything other than God's revelation in the Scripture to make you wise for salvation. And then verses 16 and 17 are perhaps some of the most important verses in all of the Bible on the Bible. Verse 16, Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture, Paul says, is inspired by God. What does that word inspired mean in this context? What does it mean that all Scripture is inspired by God? Meaning, basically, God gave the men what He would have them say. So He poured His Spirit through them, so they wrote it. So yes, men wrote it, but it was inspired and breathed by God. There you go. That's how we can have consistency in the Bible. Amen. It's the Word of God. The shorter catechism I use with my children makes it very simple. Who wrote the Bible? It was written by by men, but inspired by God. Right? Written by men, but inspired by God. That word, inspiration, inspired here, it's the Greek word, theonoustos. Two Greek words, theos, pneuma. God breathed. So that's literally what it means. It's not as if God, it's not that God breathed in the Scripture. It's that God breathed out the Scripture. When you talk, what do you do? You're breathing, right? In other words, Paul is saying God literally spoke these words. He breathed these words out through the pens of these human authors so that the product is the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And here's kind of an illustration. Somebody might say, if the Bible is written by men, how can it be God's Word? Uh, And this isn't a perfect illustration, but I think it's a helpful one. Ask the person, when you write a letter, who writes the letter? You or the pen? What's the answer? You. The pen is the instrument, the means you use to get your thoughts onto the paper. So it is with the Bible. Yes, sir. Um, 
or a, maybe a better example, uh, dictation. It's yeah. like dictation. There you go. Yeah. So you, you yeah. say something and they write it. Very good point. So God, and I think that, that is a helpful illustration. Mm-hmm. I think it breaks down a little bit like mine does because there is a dictation theory with inspiration that's not actually true. Uh, there, it's not as if God... So, and what I'm trying to say here is that it's not that God said exact words, they wrote the words, without anything to do with the human author. God moved the authors using their personalities to write. So there, I think there's an element of truth in that. It's probably a much better illustration than mine. That was a very good point. So God, using the human personalities and circumstances, dictated the truth through their pen. Very, very good point. In, in a way, though, that does hold up because a secretary might change the grammar a little bit. That's a good point. Because yeah. he says, I were something. Yeah, and he's like, Paul, that's Instead bad grammar. I am or I was. We can figure out when Paul didn't use a secretary. I guess that's when he has his long run-on sentences. <laughs> so that's a very, very good illustration. I also brother. think, yeah. and during Bible times, the authors didn't write people. They would dictate to the people that wrote it, and people would write it for them, but they would right. write word for word. Right. So the authors them in themselves, yes, wrote the book because they spoke it, but the secretary, as Miss Carroll said, or the person or the scribe wrote the actual parts. Right. Right. So who wrote the book of Romans? There's three possible answers here. Paul. But did Paul actually use his pen to write it? No. Tertius is the, the amanuensis or the secretary that wrote it. But who really wrote it? God. So there's kind of three, indiv- three entities involved in the composition of Romans, right? It's a very good point. God is dictating through these authors His Word onto the paper. Very good. So that's what it means that it's inspired of God. So all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And what is it profitable for? Four things here. For teaching. If you want to teach people truth, what do you need? What do you need to use? The Bible. The Bible. For reproof. What does reproof mean? Correction, I guess you could say, or um, more one of. It's connected with correction. It's the negative side. So reproof. What do you think? What is reproof? Pointing out. Say that again. I said I can read it in my Bible here. Go ahead. It means to tell one what is wrong. There you go. Very good. So it's the negative side, right? You show someone their error, either theologically or practically. Then correction is the positive side. Now here's the right thing to believe. Here's the right thing to do. And then for training in righteousness. That's kind of a general statement, right? You want to train people to grow in righteousness and godliness. The source you need to use is the Bible. That's why as a church, that's what we do, right? We go through the Bible. We don't have TED Talks. We don't have, you know, we don't play uh, movies and try to find Christian themes in them. We go through the sufficient Scripture because that is what we need. Verse 17. This is all so that the man of God, and in this context, man of God is a reference to Timothy as a shepherd, but in a general sense, it's any Christian, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, what are some good works that the Bible equips us to do? Evangelize. Evangelize. Love our neighbor. Love our neighbor. Visit the prisoner. Visit the prisoner, right? That's what comes from the Bible, right? So what we have all Help we need. Help someone in need. Help someone in need. Serve. 
So we, we have the Scripture that equips us to do that faithfully and effectively, right? Does the Bible reveal everything we need to know, period? Everything we need, okay? But we can't learn mathematics from the Bible, right? Because the Bible is not a mathematic textbook. It's consistent with mathematics. It's the only foundation for uh, laws of mathematics. You can't account for those laws, those immaterial laws without God. But they don't. The Bible doesn't teach you that two plus two is four, right? It doesn't teach you what uh, algebra is, and I don't know what that is either, so I can't teach you that. But the Bible doesn't teach you. The Bible is not an exhaustive science textbook. It's very scientific at times, but it does is not exhausted on science, right? So the Bible doesn't teach us everything we need to know. Period, right? If you if you need to go get a job uh, at at the grocery store, there's the Bible can help you love your neighbor and serve your employer well, but it can't help you you know do the math and the cash register and things like that. You've got to learn things outside of the Bible. But everything you need to know to be a Christian, everything you need to know to honor God, is revealed within the Scripture. All right, so the Holy Scriptures are the only su- sufficient, certain, infallible standard of all saving faith, knowledge, and obedience. So that's 1 Timothy 3. Uh, we're not going to look at all these. Let's just go to Luke 16. This is a very important one here. Luke 16. Notice how we're using the confession just to get us into the Bible, right? That's, that's the best way to use the confession. Luke 16. Verse, I want to start I want to start in verse I'm just going to read this whole passage starting in verse 19. We're probably somewhat familiar with this. So Luke 16 starting in verse 19. Luke writes, "Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, this is basically a temporal hell, in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you. Okay, so he sought his own relief first. I'm in agony. Please relieve my suffering. And that's not an option. So now he goes to a second option. He moves from himself to his family. Verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. I beg you. Hell will make you evangelistic, Mark. This is arguably one of the most evangelistic statements in all of Scripture. I don't know if anyone has ever sought the salvation of his family with such vigor as this man in hell. So from hell, he says, But Father, send him to my father's house. 
Verse 28, For I have five brothers, in order that they may, he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And then verse 29, we find this very powerful statement on the sufficiency of Scripture. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. What is Moses and the prophets? A reference to the Old Testament. They have the Old Testament. They have the Bible of the day. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If you give them a miracle, they'll become Christians. Is that true? Is that what we need is miracles? No, verse 31. But he said to them, him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to the Scriptures, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And we saw an illustration of that in the Gospel, didn't we? What happens at the... Christ rises from the dead. Uh, the Jews and the Romans see an empty tomb, and what do they do? Believe in Jesus? No, they make up a lie, a conspiracy, to hide and cover up the reality of the resurrection. In other words, the Bible is sufficient to bring someone to salvation, and if the Bible can't do it, nothing can do it. Which is exactly why it makes no sense for churches to have shenanigans and entertainment when the Word of God is sufficient in and of itself to bring people to salvation. Right? Now you're seeing why theology is so important. If I don't believe this doctrinally, if I deny the sufficiency of the Bible, it's going to affect the way we function as a church, isn't it? It's going to affect the way we function in the home. It's going to affect the way we live our lives because doctrine drives the way we live. Question. Yes, sir. Do you think this is where the Catholics think of a uh, um, meantime purgatory? Like, if you have done all these bad things, you will be in purgatory for a little while and then you'll go to hell. I don't even think they uh, use this as a proof text for purgatory. No, no because uh, it's pretty well documented, even in church history. I mean, the ch early church unanimously believed this is hell, basically. Right. And uh, there's a chasm. There's no crossing over. Yeah. So it's permanent. Um, there are passages that the Catholic Church will try to use. Uh, they use a passage in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Where Paul talks about uh, the believer's works being burnt up and being saved as through fire. That just means that if you're a Christian, all of you, you're going to stand before Jesus in judgment. It's like a fiery purification and judgment in which your works are examined and any of your impure works are going to be burnt up. They're not going to count. You're not going to be rewarded for them. That's not talking about purgatory. But yeah, Hades, uh, if you go to the end of Revelation, Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. Um, so when we talk about hell, uh, Hades is a temporal hell. When the wicked die today, they don't go to hell. In fact, no one is in hell right now. Uh, the word hell uh, in the New Testament is the Greek word Gehenna, uh, and it's a reference to the lake of fire, the final place of torment for the wicked that they're, they're going to be cast into in the final judgment. Hades is essentially a temporal hell where the wicked go until that final hell. But anyone who goes to Hades also goes to hell, right? Because once, it's appointed once for a man to die and after this judgment, right? All right. Make sense? So Hades is a temporal hell. So it is, I mean, it would be accurate to say if you die in your sin, you'll go to hell today because Hades is essentially hell. It's just a temporal version of it until the final resurrection. I also think this is a call for us as believers before, because everyone out there is going to hell if they're not saved. That's right. just black and white. Right. But us as believers, since we have a gift and we have the, we have Jesus, if 
we would want to go out and share it more so that other people won't have to suffer. I know. And just like he said, send Lazarus to go tell my five brothers, then that's basically saying, send him out so that they won't have to deal with the same thing. I know. No. And the answer is, the Bible's enough, right? The Bible's enough. The Bible trumps miracles. The Bible trumps experience. Even later, Peter's going to say that, uh, you know, we saw the risen Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, but we have the more sure prophetic word. The word of God is even more certain than our experience, because the Bible is the word of God. All right, so the Bible's sufficient. Salvation is through the Bible. If the Bible doesn't do it, nothing can. God saves, He regenerates, He gives new heart, He gives new life, and He does it through the Word of God. The Bible is sufficient. So we made it through one statement in one paragraph. That's not too, too bad. So next week we'll try to get through at least the first two or three paragraphs. Any final thoughts or comments on the confession so far? One other thing that I would say, not only is this confession written by men, obviously trying to base it on the scriptures and right. interpret the scriptures, but those original manuscripts written by Paul and Moses, David, whoever, right. were not in English, and That's it's true. English people who translated it, Right. so sometimes you see contradictions and you have to figure right. out what the different things to make it consistent right and what the old original documents right. actually said. Yeah, we call that textual criticism, right? The uh, the science of of examining various manuscripts to determine what the original said. And uh, you're right. You know, we 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 saw an example of that in Wednesday nights several weeks ago, right? With uh, uh, who was it? It was the issue of uh, David killing Goliath, but then it was someone else who killed Goliath. And it was possible that that was either, you know, just uh, a, a, a cop, a, an error in the copies or, or whatever. So, yeah, you've got to got to engage in that sometimes. Very good point. Yeah. And the, the confession is actually going to mention how the Bible needs to be translated in the common language of the people. Because we can't read Greek and Hebrew, so it would be no good for us if we had a Greek and Hebrew Bible. All right, let's pray, and then we'll take a break. Father, thank you for the confession and for the men who framed the confession. Lord, we're grateful for the biblical and doctrinal truths that are so systematically arranged and expounded on in this booklet. And our hope and prayer is that it would lead us to Scripture to examine what the Bible says on these various doctrines that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus for your glory. Amen.